Well, this time I invite the kids to head back for children's church, ages three to kindergarten, three to five years old. Feel free to head back to children's church. Miss Susan is back there with a wonderful lesson for you. I invite you to go on back. We'll pray for you. And before we do that, I invite uh, the rest of you to turn to Genesis chapter 5. We'll be in Genesis 5 this morning. It's genealogy time. I can sense your excitement. It's palpable. In Genesis 5, we're going to cover all of it, verses 1 through 32. In fact, I'm going to read all of it. Uh, you'll have to forgive me where I fudge Hebrew names here and there. I just kind of make them up as we go. That's the key to reading Hebrew and Greek names is you make it up. I'll invite you, if you want, to stand with me. Because even this is a part of Holy Scripture. Genesis 5, verses 1 through 32. I'm reading from the NIV, which says, This is the written account of Adam's family line. When God created mankind, he made them in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them. And he named them mankind when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. After Seth was born, Adam lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Adam lived a total of 930 years, and then he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he became the father of Enosh. After he became the father of Enosh, Seth lived 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Seth lived a total of 912 years, and then he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he became the father of Kenan. After he became the father of Kenan, Enosh lived 815 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enosh lived a total of 905 years, and then he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he became the father of Mahalalel. After he became the father of Mahalalel, Kenan lived 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Kenan lived a total of 910 years, and then he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he became the father of Jared. After he became the father of Jared, Mahalalel lived 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Mahalalel lived a total of 895 years, and then he died. When Jared had lived 62 years, 162 years, he became the father of Enoch. After he became the father of Enoch, Jared lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Jared lived a total of 962 years, and then he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. After he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked faithfully with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enoch lived a total of 365 years. Enoch walked faithfully with God, then he was no more, because God took him away. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he became the father of Lamech. After he became the father of Lamech, Methuselah lived 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Methuselah lived a total of 969 years, and then he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he had a son. He named him Noah and said, He will comfort us in the labor and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. After Noah was born, Lamech lived 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Lamech lived a total of 777 years, and then he died. After Noah was 500 years old, he became the father of Shem 
Ham, and Japheth. You may be seated. Our Father and God, by your grace, we love your word, and I pray that we would love your word this morning, that it would teach us. You would speak to us this morning. Give us your spirit. Give us the knowledge of your son. And give all of us in this room, those in children's church, those watching at home, give all of us grace and peace and comfort and, and conviction from your word to the praise of your son. Amen. What's the longest reign of any monarch in history? Do you know the answer? One recently died, Queen Elizabeth, dying at 96, having reigned for 70 years. Can you imagine reigning as a queen for 70 That's most of us, that's longer than our whole working lives, and we've had multiple jobs. And then She reigned for 70 years, had no idea by the end, I'm sure, what it was like to be a normal person. All she knew, essentially, was being queen. But her reign is actually not the longest in history. There's one longer. He didn't live as long, but he began his reign earlier. He was crowned king at four years old, King Louis XIV of France. He reigned for 76 years. He would have virtually no recollection of what it was like to not be king. He's, his is the longest reign in history unless you go by another list of kings. You may not know this. I wasn't aware of this. There's an ancient Sumerian list of kings. Uh, it's a list of Sumerian kings who ruled in Mesopotamia dating to or referring to a time before the flood, before their own flood story. And this list has eight kings and now do the math here, these eight kings reign for a total of 241,000 years. The shortest reign of these eight kings was 18,600 years, and the longest reign was 43,200 years, according to this list of Sumerian kings. Now there are two ways to interpret this. One is, maybe they were exaggerating. Just a smidge trying to show that these kings were basically gods in their longevity and their eternal reign. They lived for so long that maybe they're exaggerating and not telling the truth. Others have proposed that they were actually using a different numbering system. Then if you adjust the numbering system to our numbering system, you carry a decimal here and there, that the numbers actually very much line up with potential reality, because they would have these kings all living for hundreds of years and not thousands and thousands. And if that's the case, then you have the Sumerian list of kings from before the flood who all lived hundreds of years. It would very much be right in line with the genealogy we have before us where these people walked the earth hundreds and hundreds of years. It may be that both lists are actually telling the truth. I believe this genealogy, as God's word, is telling the truth. 
in fact, is here not just to tell us how long some people lived before the flood. But there are some real theological points in this genealogy. What's it trying to tell us? Why was it written down? What's the purpose of recording this history? You'll notice that it follows one specific son of Adam. Last week we talked about Cain and Abel and what happened with them. Abel's no more. What happened to Cain's line? Well, it went from bad to worse, ending in Lamech, the seventh down the line from Cain. And then God is done with that line because that line is done with God. So God gives hope in another son of Adam, one by the name of Seth. And this genealogy follows Seth's line, and you'll notice specifically follows Seth down to Noah. The genealogy names ten generations. That's likely kind of a symbolic number chosen. In fact, there will be another genealogy coming up after the flood, which also lists ten generations. And in Ruth, the line of David is listed with ten generations. Genealogies often skip generations for a purpose. They try to just show those that are selected and chosen for their own reasons, but often they're symbolic. They, not every person who's actually in the line is recorded. This is important because a while ago, there's a guy by the name of Archbishop James Usher. He's an Irish archbishop. He once tried to date the age of the earth through this genealogy, and he came up with a number saying that Adam was born 1,656 years before the flood in 4004 B.C. And he came up with that number using this genealogy. Now, whether you're a young earth or old earth person, uh, regardless of that, aside from that, that number's probably incorrect because genealogies in the Bible almost always skip generations. So maybe it's a little bit longer than 4004 B.C. But the point is, ten are chosen... Ten generations, and the reason ten are chosen is to show that this is a true line, this is a full number, a complete list of how you get from Seth or Adam to Noah. This is a legitimate line of God's people, a line in which there's some hope. Unlike Cain's line, in this line, there's some hope that maybe through this group, there will come the offspring that was promised to Eve who would crush the head of the serpent. So the author is going to follow this line specifically. I want to go through this genealogy, and I'm just going to point out a couple of different things. Three themes. We're not going to read the whole thing again, but I want to point out three themes that pop up in this genealogy that the author wants us to know. The first theme through this genealogy is the thread of hope. Not the threat, the thread of hope. That through this genealogy, there's actually a strand woven. There's hope here. There's optimism. After the uh, horrible line of Cain, we now turn to Seth's line, and there's hope in this line. First, look at the beginning of verses 1 through 3. It says, this is the written account of Adam's family line. When God created mankind, he made them in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them. He named them mankind when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. We'll stop there. You may be familiar with the term geriatric pregnancy. It's a, I don't know if that phrase or term is still in vogue, maybe it's advanced maternal age now, uh, but the idea is there's a certain threshold, and after that threshold, uh, if you have a kid born after 
a certain date or age for the mother, then there are increased risks and complications with pregnancy, uh, both for mother and child, that you're now on the curve of higher risk. Do you know what the threshold is, what that age is to be considered geriatric pregnancy or advanced maternal age? 35, that's right. When you hit that number, you go, oh man, that sounds so old. Geriatric pregnancy. How about 130 years? That was Adam's age. Or 90, or 70, or 65, or 162, or 187. Those are some of the other ages of men when they have kids, according to this genealogy. Seniors, how many of you are ready to have your next kid? You're young by comparison to many of these numbers. These dad and their kids probably ate mashed vegetables together. Diaper changing at the same time. So there's some oddities in how old they are when they have kids, but actually the real point is they're having kids, and God's not done with them. In fact, they're creating more people in the image of God. You notice the parallel of what happens here? Verse 1, when God made Adam and Eve, he made them in the likeness of God. And then verse 3, and Adam had Seth, he had a son in his own likeness. Telling us, the image of God continues. Even in the midst of the curse, after the horror of Cain and Abel, the image of God continues. God's likeness is not dead in this people, but carries on through Adam and Seth. God's plan is not dead. Sin may have messed with humanity, but the image of God has not been destroyed. And that hope kind of comes full circle there at the end of the genealogy. Look at verses 28 through 32. We hear even more that God has not given up on his people. That God has plans to end the curse. Verse 28. When Lamech, and this is a different Lamech than last week's, Lamech in the line of Cain, this is a different person, same name. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he had a son. He named him Noah and said, He will comfort us in the labor and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground the Lord had cursed. After Noah was born, Lamech lived 595 years and had other sons and daughters. And altogether, Lamech lived a total of 777 years and then he died. And after Noah was 500 years old, he became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. It ends with hope. It begins with hope. The image of God is continuing. The genealogy ends with hope. Noah is coming. And what's Noah going to do? Through God, by God's grace, Noah will be a rest and a comfort. His name means rest. And Noah sounds like the Hebrew word for comfort. So his father says he'll be a comfort. He'll comfort us in the labor and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground the Lord had cursed. There's a curse on the ground, a curse upon humanity, but God is going to give rest and comfort through his chosen people. There's hope. Hope runs through every chapter of Scripture, even the genealogies. If you'll read the Bible according to the Bible, you'll find that in every page there is God's grace and hope in it, even in a list of names, because this list of names 
is a list of names that God has set aside, that he has loved, that he has chosen, that he is going to work through to fulfill his plan of saving people. In this list of names, I want you to see a list of people that God loves and cares for. In the same way we have affection on, hope for, pride in our children, God cares for his children. Even in sin and rebellion, he has a plan, and he gives hope. That hope is needed because there is another unmistakable theme that runs through this chapter, and maybe you noticed it as we read it. When you learn how to study the Bible, one of the things you're first taught, one of the keys to studying Scripture is to look for repeated words and phrases. If you're looking in a section, what words, what phrases are repeated? Those are the ones the author's really wanting you to hear, words that stand out. So as we go through this genealogy, what words and phrases are repeated? What make an impact? As we read it earlier, what hit you? There's actually a lot of things repeated. These generations follow a formula. The man is named. It gives the man's age when he has a son. It says there are other sons and daughters. He had other kids, but we're not focusing on those because we're trying to get to Noah here. It gives a total lifespan of that man, and then it ends with one phrase in each generation. Then he died. Then he died. Eight times we hear this, what I call the procession of death in the genealogy, and he died. Altogether, Adam lived a total of 930 years, and then he died. Altogether, Seth lived a total of 912 years, and then he died. Altogether, Enosh lived a total of 905 years, and then he died. Altogether, Kenan lived a total of 910 years, and then he died. Altogether, Mahalalel lived a total of 895 years, and then he died. Altogether, Jared lived a total of 962 years, and then he died. Altogether, Methuselah lived a total of 969 years, the longest person's ever lived, almost 1,000 years, and then he died. Altogether, Lamech lived a total of 777 years, and then he died. All the generations ending with the same phrase, and then he died. Here's the point. This is what Genesis 3 has wrought. This is what has happened because of the fall, because of sin, because of rebellion. Here's what happens when humanity wanders away from God. By his grace they live, but now they die. Satan said, surely you won't die. And the genealogy says, oh yes you will. We are all going to have to come to grips with this reality that we will face death. Look at the history. Ecclesiastes tells us it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. You will die. Your death should sober you. So I'm going to make a request. I may step on some toes here, but I'm going to make a request to you, my church, my family that I love. When I die, do not call my funeral a celebration of life. I'm joking and I'm dead serious. I will come back from the grave and haunt you. (laughs) Why do we do that? Because we're uncomfortable with the reality of death. When scripture tells us, get comfortable with it, realize this, 
Better to go to the house of mourning, that you may learn from it. Don't soften it with comfortable language. So don't have for me a celebration of life. Have for me a proper funeral. Mourn me. Embrace death. Right? There's a lesson to be learned in it. Look around the room. There's a clock ticking above all of our heads. God has planned out our funerals. He's been incredibly merciful to us as a church the last number of years. I've thought about this often. Given a global pandemic, how few funerals we've had, I think is in some ways a miracle, and I honestly believe a blessing and a grace of God upon us. But funerals are coming. One Sunday will be your last Sunday here to worship with us. And if the Lord tarries by his grace, I live a long life, I'm going to bury a lot of you. And some of you will bury me. So we are going to have to get comfortable with the unavoidable reality that we are going to die. What can we learn from it? Ponder your death. Are you ready for death? Are your earthly affairs in order? We could talk about this from a very practical standpoint of what happens to your stuff. Are you going to bless others in your death? Or leave giant headaches behind? Probably going to be a bit of both. Relationally, if you died, are there going to be relationships unmended? Things you haven't said that you wish you had? Reconciliation that should have happened, but you assumed you had another day. Loved ones who need to know that you love them before you die and no longer have the chance to tell them. You're going to die. Are you certain of what will happen upon death? Are you prepared to meet the Lord Jesus Christ and all of his righteousness and all of his holiness As you stand before him, are you ready for that day? Are you ready to give an account for your life? Let me encourage you. Don't meet your death with questions. Don't go to the grave unsure. I don't know. Maybe I should have done some research on that. Figure out, right here and right now, while you have the time, by the grace of God, to know what will happen to you when you die. Because you will. It may be soon. There are some things we'll never understand, we'll never know. But there are certainties in Scripture, certainties in the, the holiness and justice and grace of God 
And we can know what we will face when we die. We also need to know that your friends and neighbors and loved ones will die. Have you considered that reality? That is, in essence, why we are planting a church. We are planting a church because people die and hell is real. That's why there's an encouragement often from us, for us, to share the gospel of Jesus Christ and life in him because people are dying. Because death is real. It's not something that can be avoided by our works, by our money, by our technology. For those who don't know the Lord and worship the beast, Scripture says the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. The only loving thing we can do for dying people is to tell them where they can have life. take people back from the brink of destruction. And good news, it's possible to save people by God's grace. In fact, the answer, did you catch it? It's right there in the genealogy. There's a life-saving, good news, gospel message right in this old genealogy from Genesis 5 that talks about a time way before the flood, even then, there's the secret to life, the hope found in one man. He shows us the way of life. Look at verse 21. You may have noticed that we skipped over this. Verses 21 through 24. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. And after he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked faithfully with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enoch lived a total of 365 years. Enoch walked faithfully with God, and then he was no more because God took him away. That sounds really different, doesn't it? We went through the whole pattern, and he died, then he died, then he died, then he died. He walked with God, God took him away. Then he died, then he died, then he died. That should stand out to you as a big, alarming, something important is happening here. There's something different in this man, in Enoch. Funny enough, Enoch is the seventh name down in this line, and Lamech was the seventh name down in the line of Cain. They parallel each other, they contrast with one another. Life goes on through Enoch, it stops with Lamech. God continues on with Enoch. We see in Enoch, he was taken up to be with God. There's a theological word that describes what Enoch experienced. The theological word is apotheosis. Just for fun, trivia, you can remember that. Apotheosis, it's a word for a, uh, a raising up, uh, sanctifying, making sacred. Uh, or it describes a sudden, mysterious disappearance. You could call it a rapture. This is what has happened with Enoch. He, in this apotheosis, this rapture, he was taken up to be with God. So I just said, everybody dies, and everybody has died, and we say this all the time. Everybody dies, you can't escape death. And then there's two guys in the Bible that we don't talk about much. Enoch and Elijah both experienced the same thing. They were taken up to be with God in these mysterious circumstances. And what are they there for? I think they're there to show us that there's a way to avoid death. That in Enoch, in this line of death, here's how one guy got out of it. By the grace of God, he didn't go through death, but God took him up to be with him. Good news. 
Death doesn't have the final answer. Good news, God has a way out. Good news, there's a way around death. That God has a plan for life beyond death. There's something more than death. And how do we find that? What's the way? Well, Enoch shows us. What did Enoch do that nobody else is recorded as doing in this line? What makes him unique? It says he walked with God. Enoch knew God and walked with him. This is how you avoid death. Know the Lord and walk with him. Hebrews 11.5 describes this relationship saying, By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. So what do we learn from this genealogy written thousands of years ago? It's an obscure piece in our, of our scripture. We have the key to defeating death. Something that all of our modern science, all of our modern psychology, all of our modern medicine, all of our modern religion, this is before even the Abrahamic religion. This is before Judaism, before uh, Christianity, before Islam. Here's the key, written down for us, plain for all people, for all history to see. If you want to avoid death, here it is. Walk with God. That's the way. Do you realize what you have in your scriptures? In a genealogy, you have the thing that all of humanity has been searching for all their lives, the key to avoiding death. Ponce de Leon went looking for the fountain of youth, and all you have to do is look at Genesis 5. Here it is. Here's eternal life. We have a pharmaceutical market that's estimated at $1.48 trillion in value. That's how much our pharmaceutical market is worth. $1.48 trillion. Trying to find ways to avoid death and live longer. Here it is in Genesis 5. Walk with God. The answer is so simple. It's staring us right in the face. Walk with God. Here's, I think, the big point of Genesis 5. Here's the big takeaway from Genesis 5. Walking with God is the only cure to the curse of death. The good news of Genesis 5, walking with God is the only cure to the curse of death. The enemy that comes for all, if you want to overcome that enemy, walk with God. So I'll ask you, are you walking with God? Notice that is an active phrase. That is a continuous phrase, a continuous motion. It is not just, have you attended church on a Sunday? Or do you have general convictions that generally align with Scripture? But is it a living, breathing? Do you walk with God? Do you know him? Do you know God? Do you respond to the promptings of his spirit? Do you understand scripture and apply it to your life? Do the commands of God shape the way you live? Is the spirit of God producing fruit through you? Do you worship Jesus as the Lord above all? Do you find joy in the things of God? Do you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Do you love your neighbor as yourself? Are you walking with God? This is a question we should ask after reading Genesis 5. Charles Spurgeon in a sermon on walking with God asked this question. Are you at a distance from God, wandering away from him? Have you forgotten that God is yours? Are you looking upon him as another man's God? It's a probing question. Do you look at God and say, that's another man's God? How many of you have friends of friends? What's a friend of a friend? A friend of a friend is somebody you have an acquaintance with. You like them. You get along well with them. Whenever you're around that person, you enjoy them because you're with your friend and their friend. But you never call up that person on your own because they're not your friend. They're your friend's friend. Happy to see you at parties. 
happy to be around every once in a while. But we don't have that kind of close relationship. You're a friend of a friend. The challenge here is for us not to be friends of a friends of God, but to know him, to love him personally, to talk with him, to walk with him, to know his will. Not just to reach out on the religious highs and the desperate lows, but a day-by-day continuous, I know my God. Not just a hobby, but a relationship that shapes your entire life as you walk with him. You may ask, how do I do that? The practical answers are know his word, delight in his word, delight in his people, worship with the church, love others, serve others in the name of God. But the real core gospel answer is know his son, Jesus Christ. Listen to Colossians 2.6. Paul gives the command in Colossians 2.6, says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. How do you walk with God? Paul knows it starts with this. As you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, you have to receive him. Not as something you work for, not a religious practice, but a simple faith. Receive the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the only way you're going to walk with God because you might look at yourself and say, I'm not good enough to walk with God. And guess what? You're right. I don't think I could live hundreds of sinless years. Well, we can't live hundreds of sinless minutes. So we need help if we're going to walk with God. And God has given us help in Jesus Christ. As you receive Jesus Christ the Lord, so walk in him. Because he is God. He is the only way you're going to avoid death. Jesus, who was and is in constant fellowship with God, who walked with God, we can be united to Jesus by faith and thus walk with him and walk with God. And I want to leave you these words from Ephesians 5. It says, Follow God's example. Therefore, as clearly, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Jesus Christ gave himself up for us as a worship to God so that we might have life in him and walk with him and walk in the love of Jesus Christ. So I leave with the admonition, walk with God in Jesus Christ because it is the only way to avoid certain death. Would you pray with me? Our Father God, we come to you and we praise you because while we will face certain physical death unless you come soon, and we pray for that, certainly. Lord, but unless you come and interrupt and catch us up to be with you as you caught Enoch up to be with you, 
Unless you do that, Lord, we are going to face death. So, Lord, I pray that you would help us to face death well, to know what we will experience when we face death, and to know that we will be united to Jesus Christ because we have received him and now walk in him. So that that day when we meet Jesus and meet you will be a day of praise and joy and life. Because we walk with Jesus Christ and you've sent him to walk with us. We praise you, God. You are the God of life. Give it to us. We pray. Amen.